Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 103, week 103, volume 103, number fucking 103. Hang on guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Matt of Shy Halud, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's kick things off with album of the week and single of the week, and it's been a very quiet week, so there's no album of the week, but we do have a single of the week. The single of the week comes from Testament, and the single is titled Night of the Witch. It's off their 12th album that's getting released on April 3rd. That album will be titled Titans of Creation, and it comes out through Nuclear Blast Records. Testament are legends of the thrash game, and you hear on this song exactly what you expect. It's thrash, it's tremendous, and it's riff city. If you like your thrash metal, and if you like Testament, you will not be disappointed. As I said, song is called Night of the Witch, album's called Titans of Creation. It will be released April 3rd through Nuclear Blast Records. Now it's time for feedback, questions, what's been going on, and it's been a quiet week, but we have noticed a lot of people listening, so whether you're new, whether you've been here since the start, thank you everyone for tuning in over the last few episodes. Now's the part of the show where we do the housekeeping, the usuals that I have to do, and that is, have you given us a rating and review on iTunes podcasts have you given us a rating and review on our Facebook page if you haven't yet help us out this week get on there give us a rating and review tell us how good we are tell us how shit we are it all helps the show grow the other bit of housekeeping is if you've got some time this week help us out with a share on your social medias or tell someone you know about the mosh zone all of this stuff guys is essential to helping us grow and we see it and when we see it we appreciate it enough of my ramblings let's kick into the main part of the show this week's guest is matt from shy halud and the first thing i'm going to say thank you so very 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 much matt for taking time out for me and the mosh zone much love much respect much appreciated so for anyone who doesn't know who Shy Halud are, which you really should, and by the end of this, you definitely will, they formed in 1995. They've got four albums and two EPs currently to their name. They're a band that has influenced pretty much any metalcore or post-hardcore. All of these kind of bands that you love, Shy Halud have been one of their main influences. Matt was an absolute legend, and the conversation we had exceeded every bit of my expectations, and it also goes down as being the longest conversation we've had on the Mosh Zone, so stoked about that also. We get into everything about him, the band, and every other little thing you could think of. That chat with Matt is coming up now. So start off with the same one for everyone and that's uh, do you remember a musician or an artist that opened your ears to music being a thing in itself not a heavy band but just a band in itself well that's actually a a great story and relevant to uh somewhat this interview um 
the my first favorite band that I can recall was uh, Men at Work from Australia. Woo. Yeah. Um, my favorite band before that was Kiss, but it wasn't because of the music. I don't think I heard Kiss for years later. Um, but as a kindergartner, Kiss was my favorite band just because of Gene Simmons and, you know, uh, the blood and the fire and <laughs> the makeup. <laughs> but um, the, the, the first band that I really, that I can recall loving um, was Men at Work. Uh, and, and I still love Colin Hay and men at work to this day. Um, you know, from there it got heavier. I think the first, I've said this before in interviews, the first cassette that I bought, uh, with my own money was journey, um, escape. Um, and, and I think my grandmother actually bought me a kiss record. Uh, she, she had bought me, um, hotter than hell. But before all, before those bands, um, my favorite band was Men at Work. Absolutely. Wow. So, what what was it like for you with your discovery? Was a lot of it through music discovery because of what you were hearing or what was on radio, or did you kind of at a young age start seeking out music that you wanted to hear? No, it was all radio for sure. Um, uh, I didn't grow up in a musical household at all. Uh, it was just my mother and my grandmother and grandfather and I, uh, grandfather and I, and uh, there was never any music playing that I recall. So uh, I just gravitated towards the radio and was always listening for something that I would like. And uh, yeah, Men at Work was one of the first bands that I heard. Obviously, the first hit in America that I recall was uh, Who Can It Be Now? Mm-hmm. And I, I fell in love. I fell in love with that and Down Under, and I, I remember begging my mother to buy me the two records, um, both business as usual. And then when it finally came out, Cargo. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was definitely. I, I was just attached to the radio and listening to different songs, uh, you know. And from there, that's how I found uh, what put me on my path to heavy metal, which was probably Twisted Sister and Quiet Riot. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean you start you start discovering a bit of this, you know, heavier style of music. And then when do you also decide to not only commit to that music, but when do you decide that you want to start, you know, playing an instrument? Like where's the transition for you from just listening to music to start chasing music as something you want to do? Um, well, I always wanted to play, but, uh, the idea of playing guitar was really, for lack of a better term, really mysterious to me. Um, you know, a drum set, I understood the first time I I ever saw a drum set was in like the marching band, uh, wing at my middle school. And uh, I, I, when I looked at the drum set, I knew that I could play it. Uh, I, I just looked at it and I understood the mechanics of it. So I asked the teacher if I could play. He asked me if I'd ever played before. And I said, oh yeah, sure. You know, lying my, my face off. <laughs> but, uh, I sat, I sat behind it and I played a beat from Motley Crue's theater of pain. Ooh. 
Um, yeah, I can't remember which song it was. A uh, very basic beat. <laughs> whatever, whatever song on that record starts with a, a, a drum beat, that's the one that I played. Um, and But guitar was always a mystery to me. So I never thought that anyone that I ever met, I mean, this is, you know, the brain of like a, a nine, 10 year old kid, but I, I never thought that anyone would ever be able to play guitar. Uh, so drums was going to be the instrument for me. And uh, the era that I really, I would say Motley Crue was the band that really wanted, really got me to want to start playing drums. Mm-hmm. I remember around uh, the time of Shout of the Devil, when that came out, I was really taken with the song Red Hot, if you uh, are Ooh, familiar yeah. with that song. Yeah, good song. Yeah, yeah. sure. So when, when, uh, when I would hear that, I didn't know how to play it. I didn't know that it was you know, done with a floor tom and a bass drum. I would just play along on, uh, with my drums. I bought a pair of drumsticks, and I would sit on my friend's bed uh, drumming on the pillow. And drumming along, doing a fairly decent job, but not uh, not knowing that I was playing it incorrectly. You know, the way that I would have been playing it would have been all on the snare or something. <laughs> but I, I was just kind of, uh, you know, doing my best with what I had, which was drumsticks and a pillow. Uh, and this is all while my friend was playing air guitar on a baseball bat. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say that it was around the time of shout of the devil when I really started uh, to want to play music. Um, And again, around that time is when I bought my first pair of drumsticks. So, I mean, was it, was it backed and supported by your family? Like when you started really committing and saying, I want to, you know, play drums or play an instrument, were they supportive and welcoming of this? Cause also you've picked, you know, starting out wanting to play drums, you have picked the most obnoxious, loud instrument possible. Well, I was just going to say, I don't think any parent is ever excited that their child is going to pick up the drums of everything. <laughs> uh, and my my mother was an angry mother to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure she wasn't thrilled. However, she did... Uh, concede to me getting a drum set and helped me pay for it and everything when I was probably around 13 or 14, I guess. Um, was she supportive? I don't think she cared either way. Um, you know, I don't know that until probably about 10 years into Shy Halud. I don't know that she realized, oh, my son is playing music and is trying to make it his career. You know, um, I think she just thought it was something that I was into at the time, not realizing that it would be the primary path of my life, uh, music and heavy music in particular. Uh, So, yeah, um, Thinking back, my grand, I, I, when I was in high school, I was asked to play in the high school jazz band as a drummer. Um, and up until that point, all I had played was heavy metal, ha- uh, hardcore, and punk. So when I started playing drums in the jazz band, I would give my grandmother tapes to listen to. And they were old standards like String of Pearls and, and you know stuff like that that uh, Lawrence Welk would play, You know stuff that my grandma liked. So my grandma was supportive once she heard me playing more jazz standards, but uh, 
you know, I don't think she ever understood uh, the the heavy metal aspect. Although she did buy me an, I remember her buying me an Anthrax shirt, which I was very thankful for. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, Anthrax, I'm the man shirt, by the way. Oh, nice. Uh, two sizes too. Yeah, yeah, nice, right? Two sizes too big too. Um, <laughs> Because that's, you know, I was a really small kid, so there was never any... Back then, when you went to a concert, you would get extra large shirts. That There was no other sizes available. Uh, at least that's how I recall it. Um, but yeah, so Grandma was supportive when she heard me playing jazz, and I don't think my mother cared either way. My dad was never in the picture, but I found out years later that he was musical, uh... Uh, in that he sang and he played he played a wind instrument um so i guess if i get it anywhere it's from my father's side of the family but i I just didn't know him growing up so i had no idea and again the household that i lived in was uh just as non-musical as a household could possibly be so what was it like for you at at high school then you know i mean high school for a lot of our listeners and i know for like myself it was as we all go through, it's a lot of it is um, finding your identity, finding yourself, um, you know, maybe fitting in, maybe not. Um, what was it like for you during high school? Was it something that you enjoyed or was it something that for you it was like, I just need to get this over and done with and then get on to the rest of life? Uh, I would say something just to get over and done with. Uh, I, I'm, I've never been a good student. I'm actually enrolled in uh, college taking uh, a few college courses right now. And I, I'm, I'm just the worst student. You know, I don't know if it's, uh, uh, dyslexia or ADHD, but I, I simply just can't pay attention. Reading has always been extremely difficult for me. Uh, and, and a lot of people are, are tend to be surprised by that because of the lyrics, uh, of mm. Jai Halud. You know, I, I try to write lyrics in the most intelligent way that I can. Uh, and I guess that, you know, I, I, I enjoy the poetic nature that words can create. So I go with that route, but the truth is, I, I, I'm a, a very poor reader. Uh, I was reading really early in life, but I never really understood what the hell it was I was reading. So, um, yeah, school for me has always been difficult, always a bad student. And currently, you know, I'm now 46 and I'm still a bad student. But <laughs> high school, high school was fun because by the time I got to high school, I was already the obnoxious metalhead. You know, uh, my friends and I, we had a band or at least we started a band probably around ninth grade. Uh, that band was called Evilalive. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty fun name. Um, good thrash name for a bunch of 13 year old kids, but, um, yeah, high school was, uh, was, was fun because I was, I, I was inherently accepted by the metalheads because, you know, I showed up with long hair and a Slayer shirt. So, uh, that was a, a fun aspect of high school. And also I was a theater major, uh, you know, when I went to college and I did theater all throughout high school. So I found acceptance with the outcasts. I don't know if you or any of your listeners were ever in, you know, the thespian group at your high school, but uh, that's usually a collection of misfits and outcasts too. 
So I, I, I found I found my place with the outcasts, whether it be in theater or the the local metalheads. Now you mentioned you know you you mentioned the metalheads and you know Anthrax and you know Metallica and anyone that knows <laughs> that you love love that classic style of metal. What about that yeah. really drew you in? Because being an outcast. Um, would probably make you feel at home, but what what about that sound that was going on at the time drew you in? Was it the intensity? Was it the anger? Was it the speed of it? What drew you in? I think it was all of the above, and also just the aesthetic. Uh, I can't remember how old I was. It might be right around the time that uh, Wasp put out their second album, um, uh, The Last Command. But... Uh, I was visiting, I had moved to Florida at this point and I was visiting a friend in New York and we both liked music. Uh, I don't think at this point I'd ever heard Wasp, but my friend's mother had told us that she would buy us both one cassette. So we were excited and we, we go to the music section of whatever store we were in and we're looking at music together. And then we slowly drifted apart because our interests were totally different. Um, so when we finally reconvened with two cassettes that we wanted his mother to buy us, he had, uh, Michael Jackson. I think it was off the wall. It could have been thriller, but it was, uh, it was a Michael Jackson record. I know for sure. And side by side, uh, I held my cassette, which was Wasp the last command. And again, I don't even know that I had heard Wasp, but you know, the idea of a guy dressed up uh, looking mean with uh, half razor blades sticking out of his arm, that was much, you know, and, and like a dark, dark colors with uh, a fire lit background. This was much more appealing to me than Michael Jackson. I also remember thinking, why would anyone buy Michael Jackson? You can hear this. You hear it all the time. Mm. You know, you don't need to buy this on cassette. But I'd never heard, at least to a, that I remember, I'd never heard Wasp before. But it surely looked cool, a hell of a lot cooler than Michael Jackson did. Uh, so I think it was, you know, everything. Because it was the same thing with me and Iron Maiden, too. I remember finding, uh, I think Iron Maiden had a video for Live After Death. Uh, there was like a, a home video. And I, I, I believe that my friend, same friend and I, we had rented it. And I didn't know anything about the band. I didn't know anything about the music. I just wanted to see Eddie. You know, I, I liked the fact that there were guys playing rock and roll and there was a monster that was going to pop up somewhere. You know, so I think, I, I think it was the, the music, the anger, the energy, the intensity, and the overall aesthetic of heavier, darker music that really turned me on. Uh, because like I said, as much as I still love Men at Work to this day, when, when I heard Twisted Sister and Quiet Riot, that definitely put me on a different path. Uh, from there, it was Motley Crue, and particularly Shout of the Devil. And as I said in many interviews before, when I heard Master of Puppets in 1986 at the age of 13, my life was changed. I mean, I don't know that I ever listened to Motley Crue as a teenager again once I heard Metallica. Uh, and I, when, once I heard Metallica, 
as cheesy as it sounds, I knew that I had found home. And from there, I found everything else because, you know, three of the best metal records of all time were released in 86. You got Master of Puppets, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying, and uh, Rain and Blood mm. uh, all the same year. So that was a hell of a year for me. And uh, I, 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 I always cite 1986 as a banner year for, for metal, thrash in particular. Now, around this time when you're growing up and you're doing a bit of stuff with music, um, are you, you're someone that a lot of people say um, is a straight edge symbol. And I know that previously I've read and heard that you've stated that you've never really lumped that tag on yourself. It's kind of been thrown at you. Um, when, when did that, you know, no drinking, no drugs, when did that become part of your life? And did you ever at an early age call yourself straight edge? The, the closest thing I ever did to uh, calling myself straight edge was when I found out about you know, if you want to call it a movement or whatever it is, whenever I heard about straight edge, uh, I identified with it immediately because I thought, wow, that's me. Uh, and I put an X on my shoe, <laughs> you know, I drew, uh, I, I had a black shoe and I, and I, I, I took like a silver magic marker or whatever I took, or for all I know, it could have been white out and made an X on my right shoe. That was the the closest that I ever came to, you know, really identifying myself as straight edge. You know, upon occasion, I remember uh, there was probably a festival in the, like, I, I think it was around 2004. I remember thinking, my God, I'm wearing a straight edge shirt. I was wearing like a, a straight edge Coca-Cola design. Uh, I don't know why. I, I think somebody gave it to me and I felt that it was uh, okay to wear but I think after that one time I wore it, I sold it on eBay. I felt I, it didn't feel right. Um, so, yeah, the term has been applied to me. Um, but I would say that when I was around, it was anywhere between 13 and 15 when uh, this and this is before I'd heard of Straight Edge. I just knew that drinking wasn't for me um, to make a long story short. My, my thrash metal band, Evil Alive, which by this point had changed its name to Unwillful Demise. Unwillful isn't even a word. We didn't know that at the time. <laughs> but anyway, we, were, we would practice at our warehouse, and we practiced in a warehouse community uh, with a bunch of other bands in South Florida. And typically, they were older kids. So every, every weekend, we would go hang out at our warehouses, hang out with the other bands, and practice. Um, and our bass player, my friend Scott, was the only one that could drive at the time. And he happened to have a girlfriend, if I remember correctly, who was 21. So he asked me for what I wanted to drink. And my answer was then what it still is now. I mean, although now I drink typically water. But uh, if someone asks me what kind of you know drink I want, I will always say Cherry Coke. So I told him Cherry Coke and I gave him my allowance money, which was probably $5 at the time. And I remember going to our little refrigerator in our warehouse and it was filled with beer. It was all beer. And I, I started taking out the beers looking for the Cherry Coke and there wasn't any Cherry Coke. Uh, so I went to Scott and I said, hey, 
what happened to the soda? You know, I gave you my $5. All there is in the, uh, the refrigerator is beer. And he says, ah, everybody else wanted beer, so we thought everyone would just drink beer tonight. No. And that was, that was the moment when I realized I didn't drink. You know, uh, I had drank before. You know, um, if somebody had bought me a wine cooler, I would taste it. I never really, I've never been drunk, but I would taste anything because I wasn't against drinking. It was only this time that I gave what little money I had for cherry Coke and I found only beer that I realized I don't want beer. I mean, these, this is, these were my thoughts and these were my words to my friends. I said, I don't drink beer. I drink cherry Coke. I had $5 and now it's gone and all there is is beer. So as revenge, I shook up everybody's beer uh, and <laughs> they got pissed off because every time they opened one, you know, it would explode I, and they would scream my name. Fucking Fox. Fucking Fox. Uh, so, yeah. And I can't tell you exactly how old I was, but it was anywhere between 13 and 15. And that's when it became apparent to me and very, very apparent to my friends at the time that, okay, Matt Fox does not drink beer. <laughs> uh, and, and it didn't, it didn't extend to anything else, but at the same time it did because, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I just wasn't interested in alcohol. Uh, and from there, you know, that was when I made the decision not to drink and I haven't ever since. It's quite, um, it's quite interesting not, that you don't, um, you know, and it's not saying speaking ill will of anyone that does label themselves straight edge, but it's interesting that as the years have gone on, you haven't um, labeled yourself, you know, as you said, with you had the shirt and then you sold it and you did the X on the shoes. But what's is there a conscious reason why, you know, you weren't out saying to everyone you know, whether media or when they called the band Straight Edge, was there a reason why you weren't intentionally labeling yourself as Straight Edge? Um, I, I think, you know, I'm only speculating as to what I could have thought, but I, I, I just think that I kind of always... Everybody, everybody wants to fit in, and I'm no exception. I always wanted to fit in. But I, for to the best of my recollection... I've never wanted to fit in at the expense of myself. Mm. Uh, I don't think I would, you know, the only thing that you would ever hear me call myself is a metalhead. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was a metalhead at 13. I'm a metalhead at 46. And uh, God willing, I'll call myself a metalhead at 96 too. But outside of that, to, to you know, put myself involved with any movement, is very, very difficult for me, uh, thinking as an adult. And I don't know, there was something that just felt corny to me, not about straight edge and not about people that called themselves straight edge, but it was corny for me, for myself, to join a group and call myself straight edge. You know, same way that I've never been involved in any gang or any uh, any group outside of a band. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, you know, uh, and and I, as a forty six year old man, now I don't call myself straight edge because I I, I can't predict the future. Mm. Uh, and, and also something that just came to mind, 
I don't want to follow anybody's rules but my own. Mm. Um, my rule, Matt Fox's rules are the best rules for Matt Fox. Uh, and, you know, f- forgive me for speaking in the third person. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, my rules are what's best for me. And I don't know what the current ideology of straight edge is. You know, I don't know if people frown on uh, people not being vegetarian, but I'm not vegetarian. Uh, I don't know if promiscuous sex is still wrong to have if you're straight edge. Uh, that certainly doesn't bother me at all. So all the ancillary rules and, and regulations that go along with being straight edge, uh, I, I, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, I'd rather follow my own rules. And my rules currently are I don't drink alcohol because I don't like the way it tastes. And I like sobriety. I like being sober. And I, I have too many friends that have either died or have ruined their lives with drugs and alcohol. So as much as I can ruin my life with just, you know, pizza, eating pizza at three o'clock in the morning or, or, or ice cream, you know, all day, uh, every day, what's the point of me finding a new vice at this age, one that could potentially ruin my life. So my rules are my rules. And, uh, it's just easier to not follow the ideology or regulations of, of uh, somebody else's standards. I think that's, I mean, you know, without jumping too far forward into things, I think that's anyone that knows the band and knows anything about you. I think that you've always been someone that does what's best for you and does things by your own rules. You're not going to conform to someone else's brackets or someone else's benchmarks. It's look after yourself do what's best for yourself and then everything else will fall into place. And if it doesn't just keep rolling with it. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, now all of that said, I should state, uh, at this point I'm looking at, uh, a Galactus figure that I have who is holding a metal X. Ooh. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, throughout the years, people have given me little representations of X's because I'm, because I don't drink or smoke or do anything. So if you were to come in my house or my apartment, I should say, you, you might walk around and see uh, an X somewhere. And then you could say, hey, I thought you weren't straight edge. But the, the truth is, I do love the fact that the X represents uh, someone who does not drink and smoke, you know, in our or do drugs in our little community. Mm. So. Uh, you will you will find a modest little uh, amount of X's scattered throughout my apartment. <laughs> now, let's kick back into a bit on the music. And, you know, you, we were saying earlier, you know, doing the drums, um, your grandmother had bought you an amp. So for the formation of Shai Halud, where was the transition for you to becoming a guitarist and... Um, why did you not decide to stick with the drums with that band? Um, if I remember correctly, the reason that I wanted to play guitar was because the member, the guitar players that I had in, uh, whatever band that I was in, I, I didn't like their stage presence. I thought, because by, by, I started playing hardcore and punk 
by the time I was maybe between 18 to 20. Uh, so around that time, you know, I knew I, I fell in love with the and was very well aware of the hardcore aesthetic. And I like that very much. I still to this day do. I mean, you know, I, I still act the same way on stage that I have for the past 20 years, um, which is a combination of both metal and hardcore. But yeah, I think I switched from drums to guitar because I just didn't like the fact that the guitar players uh, kind of stood on stage and played. And, uh, you know, I would always say, come on, man, you know, you, you got to have energy, jump up and down, move around, do something, put your guitar in the air. Uh, and, and because of that, that's why I really wanted to start to play guitar. And here's another funny thing that I just remembered when I was about like 15, um, one of my friends, a guy named Paul, if you're listening, Paul, hi. Uh, he, had written something that was pretty on guitar. He was the guitar player and I was the drummer in my band. He's also the guy whose pillow I would bang red hot on, but uh, he'd written something very pretty on guitar. I can't remember what it was, but I remember thinking, because I was a diehard romantic at the time. uh, And I just thought, wow, you know, that must be so cool to play guitar. You could actually write something beautiful for your girlfriend. And I remember thinking, what can I do for my girlfriend? Play a loud, obnoxious thrash beat. (laughs) Uh, So believe it or not, romance was another reason why I wanted to play guitar because I loved the idea of crafting something, you know, original and beautiful for, uh, for, for a girl that I might possibly date. Um, But, uh, yeah, I, I those are the reasons that I remember moving uh, to guitar. And the first time I picked up a guitar, uh, my friend Joe, who is the guitar player of Unwillful Demise, was trying to write a solo for one of uh, one part that we had in a song. So he showed me a power chord. He taught me to put one finger here, put another finger here. Now strum these two strings. That's a power chord. Uh, and from there, you know, he said, yeah, and you could do that anywhere on the fretboard. That's always a power chord. So I started learning and then I, I started practicing and moving the power chords up a fret, down a fret, inverting the power chords, adding other notes to the power chords. Uh, and, and that's really how I learned to play guitar. It all started with my friend Joe and with, from Joe's basic instruction instructions, uh, I experimented to, you know, find the notes and sounds that appealed to me the most. Uh, and that's, so I've never really had a formal guitar lesson, which I probably desperately need. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the story of me playing guitar. I don't know if I missed a part of your question or not. No, I mean, that, that's, that's perfectly hit the nail on the head. The, the interesting thing with, you know, when you guys started out around 94, 95 was there were a few bands going around that were doing the metal mixed with the hardcore. Um, What was the thought process for your creativity to bring in the two styles? Was it because you liked both styles and you thought it would mash together or is it literally kind of like by accident that you were putting this hardcore punk with this kind of real heavy, thrashy metal? Well, uh, I, I would say it was by accident 
Because I think that if you listen to uh, most of Shai Hulu's output, there's definitely some metal influences. But, uh, you know, particularly on, on the first record and, and the EPs that we did, to me, it still sounds all very much more in the hardcore realm than it does in the metal realm. Um, also, I should note, I didn't start playing when, when I was listening to metal, uh, which, as you know, now started when I was 13, I was playing drums. By the time I started playing guitar, uh, I was in love with hardcore punk. You know, my favorite band, well, still my favorite hardcore band of all time is the Bad Brains. And they're really the ones that were responsible for me uh, playing guitar the way that I play it. Uh, it was all the, the, the frantic, frenetic style of Dr. No when he would just fucking rage on those power chords. Uh, and, you know, he also went on to do much more creative things than just power chords. But um, I was always taken by the Bad Brains record that's known as the Roar Cassette hmm. uh, or Banded in Sea sometimes. Um, I remember the first time I heard Sailing On, I was just, t- uh, that's the first song off that tr- uh, that album. When I first heard that song, I, it just took me into another world. Um, and that's how I started playing guitar. So that really informed most of the music to um, for, for Shai Hulud. Uh, I, I also recall, uh, well, here's a funny story. The song, if, if anyone knows it, from our first record called This Wake I Myself Have Stirred, mm. uh, I took that song while taking a shit. I wrote that song <laughs> while taking a shit, literally. Uh, so I don't mean to gross anybody out, but that's just a true story. Um, I, which I, you know, which is very appropriate for the song, whether you like it or not. But um, so yeah, the the point I'm getting at by telling that is that song is is a hardcore song through and through. And I remember uh, a friend of mine wanted to start a hardcore band with me around the time that I had written the music. This is before Damien was involved, uh, our first singer, and before the song had a title this week, but um, I had written that song and I thought it was a, a really great hardcore song. So my friend who wanted to start a band with me, um, he came over to my grandmother's house where I was living and he said, so what kind of stuff do you have written? And I said, well, I just wrote something awesome. Great. Let me hear it. Uh, and I played him this wake and he did not like it at all because it was too hardcore. Mm. He, you know, he was really into, uh, I, I guess at the time, Earth Crisis was just, I don't think Earth Crisis had put out Firestorm yet, but um, at least in South Florida, their first record, that 7-inch All Out War, was really popular. Um, so, and I, I know that Strife and Snapcase were also popular at the time, too. But yeah, he simply did not like what I played because it wasn't, it wasn't slow, it wasn't stompy, and it wasn't metal. Um, it was more of a hardcore punk song. So I always find it funny when uh, Shai Hulud gets pegged for being, for, for calling us more of a metal band than anything, because uh, I don't really think that's so accurate. Uh, my love of metal is apparent, uh, but I think within Shai Hulud, you'll find more so than metal, 
you'll find progressive riffs. Hmm. Uh, you know, you'll find different chords and different progressions, um, which goes along into, I guess, prog rock or progressive metal. And I think that's why we get pegged uh, as being more metal than we really are. Because that progressive nature, I don't think typically goes along with hardcore. However, it does go along very well and, you know, seamlessly with with hard rock and, and metal. Um, You're also a band that, you yeah. know, you guys were, a lot of people say, were at the forefront of what metalcore really started to become. I know there were bands around the time that were doing it, there were bands before that were doing it, but... A lot of people say sure. call you metalcore because they say the band and the riffs and what you guys have done and still do has had such a wide influence and legacy on so many bands that have come up and been so popular. I mean, that's pretty crazy to think. Yeah, uh, and, and, and hey, it's flattering to be associated with you know the burgeoning of any genre. Um, so, you know, if somebody wants to call us a hardcore or metalcore or metal, um, I, I'm flat that I'm flattered that anyone's just thinking about us at all. But, um, again, just to restate, I, I really think that the metalcore aspects come much more so from the progressive nature of some of the riffs and the progressive structures, like, uh, when, when I was writing Hearts, or maybe even when Hearts came out, I don't think, nobody that I can recall ever said to me, wow, your riffs are so metal. Like, you know, uh, a band, a friend's band of ours at the time, who is probably somewhat popular on your show here, Morning Again, mm. you know, when they, Morning Again is so much more metal than Shai Hulud. Uh, and, and in the best way possible, you know, that, that was what they were going for. That was never what I was going for. When hearts came out, this is what I started to say before I cut myself off. When hearts came out, no one really said your riffs are so metal. However, again, they did say that about morning again's riffs. What they said about shy Hulud was, Oh my God, you go from part to part. How do you remember all those different parts? Um, you know, and now I don't even think that our songs had that many different parts or that many transitions, but that's what I've been told throughout the years. And if I've been told one thing throughout the entirety of Shai Hulud, it's, you know, uh, comments on the different parts constantly or, or the little change ups and the sometimes technical transitions. But I really think that it's that technical nature that uh took our our brand of hardcore and made people say you know what that's metalcore um and as you probably know we very early on we embraced the term metalcore we had absolutely no problem with people referring to us as that now now it definitely makes me crumble but then <laughs> then it was not a problem <laughs> well back then back then it wasn't you know, not just the sound now is a whole lot different than it was back then. And back then, what you guys did, you know, you look at the demo, um, the a profound hatred of man, and then you look at hearts once nourished. Um, 
what was it like at the time for you guys as a band? I mean, were you really feeling that the band was creating momentum and a name for itself? Because people now look back and really create a lot of love and uh, appreciation for it. But at the time, was there a lot of love and appreciation for it? Uh, I I would say no. Um, Hmm. We always felt like, and uh, other friends of ours felt this way too. We always felt like we were outside looking in. Um, It wasn't until, I would say, about year 2000, maybe 2001, 2002, around that era, early 2000s, when we were really started to be, when we were, when we were taken seriously and when we were even acknowledged by the hardcore scene. Uh, I don't know if it's because, you know, me, myself, I'm not a big networker. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy not knowing uh, people. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, <laughs> I know that sounds terrible and I'm not as horrible as I'm making it sound, but, uh, you know, I have plenty of friends, but, uh, my, my point is I'm not a big schmoozer. I'm not a big, a big networker. I don't care how big your band is. I'm not going to try to be someone's friend or how influential you are in the scene. It means nothing to me. I'd rather have a friend I can play board games with. Mm. Uh, you know, so, um, I don't know if it's that aspect or if it's because we were all the way down South in Florida and, you know, so disconnected from the rest of the country or world for that matter. And this is, you know, pre-internet. So, uh, no one knew who we were, Uh, but yeah, it always felt, and and friends of ours would always say, yeah, it just seems like you guys don't fit in. Uh, so we definitely didn't feel any type of appreciation till nearly 10 years as a band. The band started in 95. So a little less than 10 years. I, I would say in the, like I said, the early two thousands, did it start to seem that people really cared? Um, I mean, we had smatterings of fans, you know, we made friends with the band indecision. And I, I mean, I credit the band and the members of indecision, for really getting Shai Hulud a following in New York or, or in Jersey for that matter. Uh, because when they played with us, not only did we become good friends, they would always stay with us when they came down to Florida, but uh, you know, they, they really genuinely liked the band and I think they brought it, uh, you know, this is again, before the internet brought it anywhere indecision really brought it to New York. Uh, and, and the uh, upstate areas. So, um, yeah, we had a smattering of fans, but uh, I don't feel like a lot of uh, love came for the band until the early 2000s. Yeah, which is quite interesting because from 2000s on, you guys um, really, you know, you started to, whatever you guys were doing, it seemed like you didn't have to overly promote, you didn't have to overly do videos or anything you guys were gaining momentum, but without um, switching too much, one thing that everyone knows is no matter what's happened with members rotating, there's always been the momentum to push on. And a question I've got with that is everyone listening might understand or not understand, but you know, you're putting four or five different personalities together. So that's four or five different relationships. They've all got to interact 
Um, when members come and go, is it really hard to keep momentum moving? Is it really hard to keep passion going? Because it's quite a big thing to change one person out and bring a new person in. It can change the dynamic drastically. Yeah, uh, it is absolutely incredibly difficult. Yes. Um, when right around the time we were writing and recording that within blood, ill uh, ill tempered, uh, our, our second album, um, we started finding that we were replacing members more regularly than we had been. Um, and not for any bad reason. We just had a, we had a friend who uh, our drummer at the time who started writing hearts or I mean, uh, blood ill tempered with us. He got a girlfriend and he got a job and he says, yeah, I think I'm going to marry this girl. So, you know, he had to part ways. Um, we had a, a guitar player that uh, turned out to be not such an honest guy and not such a great guy. Uh, so we had to let him go. You know, uh, every once in a while, it, it seemed that somebody would just come and go. Um, and at the time, my mindset, I, I always said this, I go, we're on a train, you know, we're on a train, we're moving however fast we're moving. And you are more than welcome to join us, but you got to hop on the train. You got to run and jump on, which meant, you know, you have to learn the songs quickly and you have to, you have to get acclimated very soon. You have to jump on and jump in and let's go. You know, the same way that metal bands do it. You always hear stories about, uh, I, I think it was Slayer, where somebody, it might have even been Paul Stop, Bostoff, the last uh, Slayer drummer, where the first time that he played the Slayer songs, he had to, you know, uh, fully learn like 20 songs for a show the next day. And he did. Um, you know, you hear about stuff like that in metal all the time. You don't hear about that in hardcore so much all the time. Um, and going back to what I said before, because of the, I guess, I don't even think it's that atypical, but because of what's considered, uh, to be atypical in our music, it was a lot more difficult for people to come in and learn the drum parts or learn the vocals. We didn't, we didn't replace gear until 2003, but, uh, um, gear was our singer from uh, about 97 2003. I thought it was about 97 but alright 99 yeah 99 uh, cause we found him on our first tour in Europe in the Netherlands mm. um, but because of the nature of our music or like I said or what people have called our music it, it, it seemed to be difficult for people to jump on the train uh, and yeah that, that definitely caused uh, a lack of passion at some points because you know, replacing, forget about replacing members, but even just trying out member after member after member and nobody being able to do what we needed them to do was exhausting. And after a while, yeah, you, you, you start to lose hope. Now, you know, Shilute is, is still a band. We're still playing. Uh, you know, we haven't played in three years, but we, we head over to England in April for the Manchester Punk Fest. Uh, so the band is still together, but 
I don't have that, that train that I had mentioned before that's going at a certain speed. Now that train is very slow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that train, that train is very slow. It's a lot easier to hop on now. Um, because we were back then we were, I mean, I guess every band has their 15 minutes. So we were in our, our, uh, window of 15 minutes. Um, and I didn't want to lose that. You know, I saw, okay, this next album is going to be important for us. Uh, we're getting offered bigger tours. I remember when we first got our first tour with sick of it all, I was like, holy shit. Okay. We have made it now, <laughs> you know, because sick of it all to me is, was another one of the reasons why I started playing hardcore. Um, so we wanted people to jump on that train, but now it, it's, it's definitely a different entity. Um, now I, I, I'd be happier to just take our time and get members on board who are going to stick. But uh, yeah, the, the, the member changes have been a thorn in Shihalud's side for, for now many, many years. And, and it's so shameful to me that it's become synonymous with the band. You know, Shihalud, oh, you mean the band that has so many different singers or so many different member changes? It's uh, it, it, it's it. That's not a legacy I'm proud of. Yeah, I think uh, I think the probably more aware listeners of the band would know that, but I think a casual listener of the band probably doesn't know that. I think you know I've got all the CDs, and I was looking back at the years they were released. I think member changes is one thing, but I think possibly looking back, the problem it might have created is there were unfortunately such big windows of years between albums. Do you think that could have really slowed down you guys reaching the next level? Because there was like, what are we looking here? Six years, then there was a five years. You know, it for bands then and still now, it's a usually a two to three year turnover. Is that something that might have slowed you guys from reaching the upper echelons of the genre? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that was uh, uh, another large aspect of it. You know what? Uh, thinking back, probably more so than even member changes. Singer, singer changes can be pretty devastating. And the fact that we have, uh, you know, three different records consecutively with three different singers, uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't give us the most credibility. Um but yeah, that time in between records that we took, I would say definitely hurt us. And uh, I, you know, I can only really blame myself for that. You know, I writing music and lyrics for Shai Halud for me is very difficult. I am not as smart or nearly as clever as the output. I'm proud of what what Shai Hulud's done. And so this is me paying myself a compliment. I think that Shai Hulud has, has some great lyrics. I think that we have some uh, pretty clever and uh, really impactful music. That said, it takes me a fuck of a long time to do that. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I am no, uh, I mean, I'm even hesitant just to call myself a musician when somebody you know, somebody in my family says, oh, our, our nephew is a musician. Like, well, <laughs> I, I don't know that I would call myself a musician. You know, musician is a pretty, loft, a pretty lofty term. I mean, I, I can play guitar, 
but I don't know that I'm a musician by any stretch of the imagination. And that, that gap in between records has a lot to do with the fact that the standards within Shailud that I set for Shailud are so high uh, that it takes me forever to reach them. It takes me a long time to meet my own standards, uh, you know, for, for Shai Halud. Like, you know, for my other band, Zombie Apocalypse, it's a different type of band altogether. So, you know, Zombie Apocalypse could have a simpler riff or a simpler part or just a simple song in general. Uh, and that's not to say that it's not good, but it's just a different approach. Shai Halud everything has to be of somewhat an epic proportion. Uh, that's just how the band evolved. And that's what I like now. Um, and to get to that point, it takes me more thought than I'm usually willing to expend. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot of thinking and a lot of work for me to, to craft a shy Halud record. Forget about Just a song is difficult enough, but, uh, I think that is, a lot of the reason why there's been sp such space between albums. I, I told this story recently. Um, Matt Fletcher, our long, Shia Lou's longtime bass player, who's not currently in the band, uh, but is still part of the family. Shia Lou has a, an extended family of people that have been behind the scenes for a long time and will always be. Uh, and Matt Fletcher is definitely in that company. But Matt Fletcher, when we were writing That Was In Blood Tempered, I remember once I was laying in bed and uh, I was thinking about the songs that we were writing and I was having a hard time coming up with different parts. And I remember uh, Matt Fletcher coming into my room and saying, what's the holdup here? What, why, why aren't we moving forward with this? And, and he was right. Uh, and it all stemmed to the fact that I, I was having a difficult time moving forward and I was opposed. I don't want to say opposed, but I, maybe I was just scared of, of having to think more and having to work harder. Uh, I, I have never been a hard worker in my life. You know, a lot of things that, uh, that have come to me musically, uh, like when some people say a song kind of writes itself, I love when that happens because the last thing I want to do is write it. You know, I like when something comes easier, but uh, that within Blood Old Tempered was a huge undertaking for us. And uh, to your point, I think the band and the album would have done a hell of a lot better if we would have gotten that album out in, let's say 2000 rather than 2003. Um, yeah, so you're not wrong. You're not wrong there. Well, I think that album that album did really well with fans and people still love it and obsessed with it like myself, but I remember at the time being so into it and then a little bit of time passed and then kind of you guys went on hiatus um and then everyone kind of freaked out. Um you know, <laughs> it was you know, it's kind of that thing when you uh, someone for my, myself who's really obsessed with the music he's into, you get really into it, you love it, and then you're like, yeah, into this, and then it's like, oh, the band's going on hiatus. And I remember everyone who was friends with me just going, okay, that's them gone, because um, that's usually what that means. Um, and you guys didn't come back for quite a while, but 
was that a case of um, just enough was enough, everything wasn't working out for you and you were like, look, I just need to take some time away? Because I also remember there was the talk of a name change as well at the time. Uh, let's try to remember back. Um, I, I blame my work ethic for some of it, uh, you know, because it, it's so funny just coming from a guy who wrote a song called If a Mountain Be My Obstacle, mm. uh, you know, speaking for myself, not necessarily for Matt Fletcher or anyone else who was in the band at that time, you know, so many things felt like insurmountable obstacles, whether it was finding a new singer or writing a new record or trying to rebuild the band, trying to prove to people that we were still relevant, whatever, whatever the case may have been, um, that probably caused a hiatus and that, and probably some uh, laziness on top of everything. Um, I'm trying to remember when the first hiatus was, I guess it was really around 2000 four or five maybe mm. does that sound about right to you yeah it sounds about I right I, i'm thinking about 2005 late 2004 i think yeah uh i think you're right well we were we we had done a tour in japan i think in 2004 and we were our drummer at that time had left and uh I think both Fletcher and I, probably more so me, were just, we, we were so tired of having to find uh, uh, drummers. I mean, as you know, as anyone who's involved in music knows, a band is only as good as its drummer. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and if, if you have a band that has some, tech, some semblance of technicality, finding uh, an extremely capable drummer is paramount. So I think that we got tired of looking for all that, uh, for you know, all these qualities in a drummer. Uh, I remember there used to be a website. I don't know if it's still around called drummerfinder.com. I remember when we found that, we were like, oh, my God, okay, our, all our prayers are answered. We're going to use drummerfinder.com and finally find somebody. <laughs> I don't think we ever did. Uh, but, um, you know, so that may have been the impetus of the, uh, the, the first hiatus. And it may have also been, cause I really don't have any clear memories of it. It may have also been just like you said, needed a break, uh, uh, you know, just a little tired of the runaround, you know, that train again, that I spoke of that train uh, was not so much a train as it might, as much as it was us running, uh, you know, as fast as we could, uh, for long periods of time. And I think once we started slowing down, we got addicted to that a little bit, or at least I did. I shouldn't speak for anybody else. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm saying that that's the reason for the hiatus is because speaking of the band currently, you know, our, our last tour was in Japan. It was about four years ago. And it was the same thing, uh, you know, replacing bass players, replacing guitar players, Thankfully, we've had a steady drummer for a few years. But uh, after that last Japan tour we did a few years ago, uh, I, I came home and I feel like I slept for three years. Uh, I needed, I definitely needed that time away. Um, you know, if you noticed in the past, which maybe nobody had, 
but in the past few years, uh, you know, our social media pages have really haven't produced much because there was nothing going on. I, like I said, I was literally sleeping, but, um, getting, being tired of the runaround and being tired of trying to keep your band active and going is really can be, uh, can take its toll. And I think it did back in 2004 or five, and it definitely did again uh, just a few years ago. Well, I think the other thing that probably comes into play also was around that time of 2004 ish, the, the industry went through a big change too, and is still in a big change sure, now. Absolutely. Um, sure. You, you guys would have been a band as all heavy bands are They're whether people like to admit it or not, they are underground. So surely that effect would have also hit the band that, you know, you're now physical copies aren't selling as much, um, you know, tours aren't packing out as much. These things must have, you've started to notice too, probably. Oh God, as far as, as, far as tours go, I mean, it's so funny because, uh, you know, Shiloh was considered by some to be a popular band but boy did our tour numbers really suggest otherwise um yeah i i I remember doing one of probably our last tours with gear back then you know gear being that that was in uh blood tempered singer Mm. uh and i remember quite a few of those shows having such poor turnout um and and yeah, that was no fun, and that didn't help uh, uh, propel us along by any stretch. Uh, the 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 lack of CD sales never really changed for us as far as selling at shows. Um, you know, we always sold roughly the same amount of CDs at shows. I would say, because you know, that being said, we never sold that many to begin with. So, uh, I. I the CD sales overall, those numbers, I I have never checked uh, what our sales are. To this day, I have no idea what Hearts or what Reach Beyond the Sun or any of our albums have sold. Uh, I have no idea. It, it, it's just that, you know, I don't receive royalty checks, so I know it's not selling great. <laughs> you know, it's like... Uh, uh, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to know that we've sold, you know, three new albums in, in a quarter. It, 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 it just doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'd rather move on, <laughs> you know, I'd rather move on to the next thing. Um, um an interesting sure, thing, an interesting thing that everyone, you know, that knows the band, when you came back, um, not only did it feel like the band had re-energized itself, but you were on Metal Blade now. Um, not to say that Revelation Records wasn't a big thing because at the time when you guys linked up with Revelation, that was a big thing. But 2006 to 2007 when you you know announced that you were on Metal Blade, um, that's got to be a big kick in the ass of momentum and energy for you guys because Metal Blade is a very... Um, iconic, legendary album in the heavy scene. Um, so my question is kind of like, how'd that link up come about, and did it put a fire under your ass? Uh, it definitely put a fire under our ass. Um, I don't know that it put enough of a fire, but it definitely did. Um, and how'd it come about? 
it, it just seemed that at that time, Metal Blade was like one of the hottest labels. They had every band that was becoming huge or huge. Uh, let's see if I can recall. And, and, and the good thing about all of these bands that were either becoming huge or were huge were all friends of ours. So you had Black Dahlia Murder, The Red Chord, Unearth, uh, our friends from Florida, Into the Moat. Mm. Um, uh, there's a couple others that I can't even think of, but there were so many bands that we were such good friends with, and they all had just signed the Metal Blade, and every one of them went to, you know, we we sent our demo into uh, their publicist at the time, a friend of mine, still a great friend of mine named Kelly, and uh, you know, she said, "Wow, not only is your demo great." But like every band we have is saying, sign Shai Halud, sign Shai Halud. So, uh, you know, we had we had a, a good cachet of bands really uh, putting in good words for us. And, and really between Kelly's passion for the band and, uh, you know, all of their biggest hitters at that time, really plugging us. Uh, that's what got us on. Uh, I would say more so than our history. You know, I, I don't know, again, I don't know what our record sales were, but I'm sure our record sales weren't all that impressive to Metal Blade, especially not to Metal Blade. Um, so uh, I'd like to say it was somewhat on the strength of our three-song demo, but mostly because of uh, Kelly, the publicist, and all those bands that, that went up to bat for us. We're Metal Blade, uh, you know, I've heard stories and we've had people on the show that tell stories of labels uh, backing them not only with promotion but also with whatever they want to produce with their music. Were Metal Blade 100% behind you guys or were they saying, um, you know, maybe don't do this, uh, let's do a bit of that instead? Um, well, I would say for Misanthropy Pure, they were all in uh, because I think if you're going to sign a band, you know, you, you want to put them through uh, the, your machine and you want the machine to be going as hard and as fast as possible to see what this band can do. Because maybe the fact that the band has only sold 10,000 or so records was because of the label they're on. You know, now you put it through the Metal Blade machine, what's going to happen? So I think they ran us through the machine to see what could happen for that first record. Uh, I would say, based on the sales for that record, dictated what happened for us on the second record, which was Reach Beyond the Sun. Um, was there less promotion? I don't know that there was less promotion, but you know, when we recorded Misanthropy Pure, we were told directly, all right, we got to make a video. We never made a video for anything off Reach Beyond the Sun. Now, I don't know if that's because of our numbers from Xanthropy Pure didn't warrant spending the money on a video for Reach Beyond the Sun, or if it's because videos, you know, at that, when Xanthropy Pure came out, MTV2 was still playing videos. Our, our video actually got played on MTV2, which was like the coolest thing for me. Uh, you know, I never thought that that would happen having been an avid fan of, uh, you know, Headbangers Ball my teenage years, to see 
uh, you know, a, a Shai Halud video where I had once seen Coroner videos and Cro-Mags videos uh, was pretty awesome. And Metallica videos and Slayer videos. So, but yeah, we didn't get a video for Reach Beyond the Sun. And that may or may not have been because of the sales of the album that preceded it. Um, who knows? Uh, you know, I do know that our, our, our budget was a little less the second time around. And you, you, you have to think that that's based on the numbers. So Metal Blade did light a fire up our ass and they did a lot of promotion for us. But I think by the time of the second record, you know, we, it's really what you get from your, and I'm making this up. I don't really know this for, for sure, but it seems logical to me. If I was running a label, you know, uh, I, I would base what I put into the band on the second record somewhat on what they did on the first. Uh, and I think that's what happened with us. Uh, you know, right now, Shilud is, is, I don't even know if we're still signed to Metal Blade. I haven't spoken to them since we went on our most recent hiatus. But, uh, you know, I suppose if we do another album or something, there'll be another fire. Uh, and hopefully it'll get put, you know, run through the metal blade machine, but who knows? I don't, I, I don't even know that there will be another shy album. So we'll have to see what happens. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned there about how they judge the first one with how they spend on the second one, which you can understand, but then also, um, sure. if, if you're not spending close to what you did the first time, there's you're not going to get close to possibly the same results it's that classic thing if you're not putting the same effort and money in you're pretty much putting it behind the eight ball to start with um i i do remember the the first one on metal blade uh, the misanthropy pure it was around i knew it was around before it came out i remember reach beyond the sun um I'm someone that always goes to my local record store and suddenly I was in the record store and there it is on the shelf. And I was like, uh, when, when was this coming out? Like, I don't fucking know about this. That that's where the label, wow. I well, think, the label needs to take some responsibility because if, even if you're, even if you think it's not going to sell, if you don't promote, then you're not giving it a chance to sell. Yeah. You're not wrong. I think it's one of those, uh, you know, catch 22s that happens. Uh, I, and I'm sure that's a really difficult, uh, thing for, uh, a label to, uh, strategize, you know, but if they want to be strategical, it, it makes the most sense to, to go where the money's at, uh, mm -hmm. to do for the second album, roughly what the first one warranted. But like you said, then you're, you know, you're behind the eight ball. You're, uh, you're almost shooting the record in its foot you know, at the outset. So who knows? Uh, and again, I can't say that metal blade did that, but the fact that you knew about misanthropy pure, uh, before it came out and found out about reach beyond the sun when it was out. Well, that's uh, that's some indication right there. Mm. It was, it was crazy, but I want to talk about reach beyond the sun because that was quite interesting that, you know, you got Chad back to produce and I've heard some stories that, yeah, he's on vocals. Anyone listening that hasn't heard it yet, um, which you should by now. 
what happened there? Like, you obviously tapped him up to produce the album, and then when did you break the news to him that you need him on vocals as well? <laughs> well, it's funny you put it like that, because that's exactly how it happened. Uh, we, we, we broke the news. I broke the news to him. Uh, well, we had done uh, a short Newfound Glory tour in uh, maybe 2008, right around the time of Ms. Anthony Pure. Uh, 2008, 2009, something like that. The years just kind of blend together for me at this point, <laughs> especially those mid years. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did a tour and, you know, Chad and I have been friends since he was 15 and I was 23. So, you know, uh, when we were on the tour, we would hang out a lot and either he would ask or I would just show him. But, you know, the idea of what, what about what new music are you writing? And I would show him. And he loved everything that I would show him. He said, wow, these, you know, these are some really great riffs. Uh, he says, and I don't know if it was him or me, but we, the idea of us working together in the future as a, you know, with a, as a band and a producer had come up. Um, again, I really couldn't say who came up with the idea, but that had always been in my mind. So as the songs progressed, and I, you know, started taking just the riffs that I showed him and put them into actual songs. One day I just hit him up out of the blue. Well, not necessarily out of the blue because we're always in touch, but, you know, uh, he probably hadn't heard from me for a little while. Certainly nothing about Shai Halud. But uh, I sent him the newer songs and he said, Matt, these are great. I really want to do this record with you. So, he was really into it, which was awesome because that, that seemed, and that lit another fire under our asses because we thought, wow, you know, Chad now with, uh, you know, all that he accomplished with Newfound Glory and with his producing credits, you know, having done H2O and Terror and I think A Day to Remember, um, you know, he was really growing as a producer too. So we thought, wow, this is, this could be really, really good for us. Um, so we had scheduled, if I remember, I don't remember the year, um, but uh, maybe 2012, but we, we had scheduled um, to record in April. And I remember calling him after it was official that the singer we, who we thought was going to be on the record was <laughs> definitely not going to be on the record, was no longer in the band. I called Chad and said, well, so we're recording in April, aren't we? And he said, yeah, can't wait. I'm fucking excited. I said, well, here's the deal. <laughs> and just like you said, I broke it to him. I said, we do not have a singer. Uh, so either we can take the time to look for a singer or you can do it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and if I remember the energy, if I remember anything, I remember the energy sap on the other end of the phone when I said that to him, it was like, Oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like I, I was so certain that there was no way in hell he was going to do it. He did not sound, this is what I recall. He did not sound excited. Um, you know, and, and he says, all right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to think about that. But then the probably less than 24 hours later, you know, he said, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I talked to my girlfriend. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> I don't know if he said fucking, but he <laughs> said, let's do it. So, uh, 
you know, and, and, and that was really refreshing. And that was very invigorating uh, because I thought, wow, not only do we have, you know, uh, a good producer who's got a history with his band and other bands, but now we've got the singer from, you know, the lauded first album, because, you know, our first album is always going to be the best, of course, hmm. you know, uh, so I thought, wow, now we have the, you know, the first album guy, whether he was uh, in Newfound Glory or not, no matter what it was, it was just, it was the vocalist on the first album, the, you know, the untouchable, the one you can never replace. Uh, and we had him back. So I was really excited and I thought that would be, uh, you know, uh, I thought it would turn out really well. And, and, and the album did well. The album did very well. I think it did better than Misanthropy um, Pure. Um, but uh, it certainly didn't catapult us to superstardom. But, um, you know, the album was a, a, success, a success for what it was, for sure. Yeah, it was. It was, you know, from what I remember also, it was really well received um, and quite a bit of buzz around it. Like you said, probably some of the buzz was because Chad was back, you know, ever since he hadn't been on one since 96. So, you know, he's back, quite a bit of buzz. Um, but then kind of, you know, you've touched on it before, the hiatus, um, yeah, there was an EP in 2015, um, but like, what's the status now with A, new music, B, the band itself, and then C, tours? Like you mentioned you're going over to UK later in the year, but where is the band now for you? Is it kind of a slow burn? Is it? Are you now walking instead of running with the train? I mean, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. It's definitely more of a walk, I think. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, I'll tell you what's, what's the, the, the status of the band now. Um, a few years ago, uh, right before we did that, that last EP in 2015, uh, we had a singer. Uh, it's the guy that was on the Zanthropy Pure. He was back. It was the guy that did that last EP that just can't hate enough times two EP. Um, but we had, we were offered a couple shows with all out war, uh, you know, good friends of ours from Poughkeepsie. So we, I, I, I took those shows to our singer at the time and he says, Oh man, there's just no way I can do them for whatever reason. He couldn't do them at the time. I happened to be working out with Jay Pepito. Um, hmm. If anyone knows, the name Jay Pepito, uh, you know, he's the singer of Reign Supreme, who I'm not sure, I don't think is active, but he also plays bass now in a, in a new band called End, mm -hmm. uh, which has Brendan from Counterpart singing, and probably people are familiar with that. But um, so I was working out with Jay, you know, a few times a week, and I said, hey, Jay, uh, we have a singer, but he can't do these shows. Would you want to fill in? One's in Philly and one's in Poughkeepsie. So it's like you know, home and local shows. He said, yeah. And, uh, we did these two shows with Jay and they went over, I mean, beautifully. They were, he, he's a great front man, a great vocalist, and he did a great job. And throughout the years after, um, like I had mentioned the hiatus we took after our last Japanese tour a few years ago, uh, throughout the years when I thought that Shai Hulud was, I don't know if I thought it was completely done, but uh, I definitely needed uh, an extended break. 
during that extended break, Jay would message me from time to time uh, talking about, you know, he would usually say it publicly on, on social media sites, time to do more shows with me on vocals. Uh, and I never really took it seriously until last year. Uh, one day I'm just, uh, I, I, I get a message on my a text message on my phone and I check it. It's from Jay Pepito and it just says, it's time, <laughs> uh, you know, such yeah, such an ominous, uh, text message. So I, I, I kind of got excited and, uh, you know, I texted him back. We, we had a conversation about, um, that he thought we should jump back in and start playing some shows together. Um, uh, I don't know what his end goal is. I, 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 you know, I'm not sure that Halud will ever be a full-time touring band again, but as I know, as I can state now with certainty, you know, we are people who follow us know we are now again, an active band and we start our activity uh, this coming April. And, uh, you know, we follow that up later in the year in September, uh, when we play Furnace Fest in Alabama. What about, um, new music then? Like is new music something that could possibly be on the horizon or is that more realistically something for maybe in a couple of years if the, if the fire is still there? Well, let me ask you a question, mm. and I've never asked this question before, but this is true. Does the world really need new Shy Halud music? I mean, aren't we? Uh, I'll let you answer if you <laughs> if mm. you really have an answer. But the the truth of the matter is, we've been around for so long, you know, uh, not as long as Iron Maiden. But if I go to see Iron Maiden. Do I really want to hear the new record or do I want to hear the trooper? Do I want to hear Aces High and Power Slave? So, uh, you know, there's a part of me that really wants to write and put out new music because I think that what I have written b- before we went on our hiatus, I was writing for the new Shia record, the follow up to Reach Beyond the Sun. And, um, you know, I have what I think is a lot of great stuff, but will the world or will people who like Shai Hulud be receptive to it? You know, do they want a new record? And if they even if they do want a new record, like I said, if we go to play live, uh, are, are they going to want to hear five, six, seven songs from it? Or is it just going to be all stuff from Hearts Once Nourished and That Within Blood Tempered that they want us to play? So I'm kind of going over and over in my mind, whether or not it's really worth putting out a new record. I, I, I really don't know. I think, yeah, that's, you've answered like the question and the whole concept is you can completely understand that there will be the people that would want to hear new music when they see you live, but then there will be the people that keep saying, just play the, just play the hits, just play the hits. But for, for me, with the lyrical content that you create, and with how fucked up and messed up the world is right now, I would be really excited to hear what you put down on lyrics with the music in 2020 or 2021, whenever it is. I think what you could express um, could be really just intense, really. Not to say none of it's intense, but you know what I'm saying. Sure, sure. 
Well, um, it, it's possible. I mean, we have uh, we have some great ideas. Like I said, I, I, I was you know planning on writing the follow up to Reach Beyond the Sun. So I have uh, a good amount of stuff written, and I've got lyrical concepts and everything. But um, I, I just can't shake the feeling uh, that it might not just be necessary, hmm. you know, uh, just like it, it's not necessary for Iron Maiden to ever release a new record. I mean, I hope they do. I'll always buy it. I'll always listen. Um, but will that translate in me wanting to hear new songs when I see Iron Maiden live? Like, what, what would I do if I didn't hear, uh, you know, the Trooper at an Iron Maiden concert? I'd, I'd be devastated. <laughs> well, I mean, then a question to that is, um, have you been offered um, anniversary tours or, you know, celebrational tours for albums um, at any stage? And then is it something that, considering what you're saying about people wanting to hear the hits, is it something you would consider doing? You know, if people like, oh, just play, come out and just play Hearts One Nourished back to front. Yeah. Um, have we gotten offers? No, I wouldn't say we've gotten offers. I mean, somebody uh, a few years ago was, was putting together like a classic tour and they mentioned uh, us doing that within Blood Old Temple, but nothing ever came of it. That's probably the only thing that was ever offered to us um we had discussed doing a 20 year uh anniversary for that or for um hearts once nourished but it never happened uh i mean we still play we play all the hits from hearts once nourished currently you know or when we were active uh you know three years ago um so I don't know, like the songs off of Hearts Once Nourished that we don't play, people don't want to hear. We uh, Two of the songs off Hearts Once Nourished, we've never played live ever, ever. <laughs> you know, and there's never been a, re- there's never been a request for them ever by anyone. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know that anyone really wants to hear Hearts Once Nourished back to front. Uh, they just want to hear the songs that they want and we know what those songs are you know so don't (laughs) talking to people uh that like the band don't worry we know we know what you want we'll play it (laughs) um but uh would i do i I would be happy to do um you know an anniversary tour if that was one of your questions um yeah i mean if somebody like if a decent tour came around and they they offered us uh you know, feasible money. I don't want to say a lot of money, but just feasible money to make it happen. Uh, I would be, and I, I think Jay Pepito would also be happy to do uh, an anniversary tour for any particular record. Um, some records would take a lot more work than others, but uh, you know, because we got, we got more technical and uh, added more uh, progressiveness to our songs, you know, each next album. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would happy, I would be happy to do that. But, and I think you also said, would we be happy to just be a legacy band? Mm. Uh, I, I think, I think that's where all bands end up at some point. Um, 
you know, I would, in my heart of hearts, I hope that there is a desire for new Shai Halud music. And I hope that it would be uh, accepted into the canon, into the catalog, so that we could go on a tour and play new songs and get, you know, the reaction that we would get from the old ones. Um, you know, I, is that just a pipe dream? It could be. I don't know. But uh, even if 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 Shailud was relegated to a legacy band and we toured, you know, maybe a couple months a year just doing the hits, uh I don't know that I'd be satisfied as somebody, as a writer, um, because, you know, I do, as difficult as I've stated, as difficult as it is for me to write music and lyrics, I still do want to do it and I do want to release new stuff. But maybe, maybe Shailud has capped its uh, catalog off. You know, maybe there is no need for new Shailud music. Maybe anything that I write would have to be under a new project name. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Uh, but I, I would be, I would be flattered. Sorry to, to keep going here. I would be flattered to even be a legacy band. Uh, I do love playing shows. I love connecting with people, especially through music. That's the easiest way I know how. Um, and yeah, would be absolutely thrilled to have that opportunity. You know, not every band that's been around, gets to be a legacy band. So, uh, I, yes, I, w I would be, if that were our fate, I would be happy. Well, I think, you know, whether you guys realize it or not, um, I looked up a lot of bands that note you guys as influence and legacy. Um, I think you're definitely there. Um, whether new music comes or not, uh, the fact that there's still some rumblings going on with the band and some shows here and there. For me, a diehard fan, that is a positive in itself. Um, so, you know, I can always dream that one day you guys with a good package get brought back to Australia because um, I told a few mates I was lining this up and the one thing they kept saying was, get Matt and the band back to Australia. I was like, eh, well, you know, I'm sure it's not as simple as hey. just tell him. It, it, it really isn't. We we tried to return to Australia about three or four years ago, and my my contact there just said the the money isn't there to make it happen. Um, you know, uh, we would have to get asked to be on a package tour or something, um, but or, or we have we'd have to find a smaller underground promoter. Uh, that's willing to, you know, do everything DIY as we've done it before to get over there. Mm. But um, if, if it's not out of the question, uh, Australia is absolutely 100% one of my all-time favorite places to be. Uh, and I would absolutely, uh, I would kill to go back to Australia. Literally, I could think of a couple people that this planet <laughs> does not need. I would I would kill to return to Australia. Well, we'd, you know, if sacrifices need to be made, we welcome them. You know, we welcome these sacrifices. Uh, perfect. Hey, so anyone listening that anyone listening that wants Shailud, just uh, everybody starts spamming Parkway Drive. Tell them to bring us over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Winston and Co. Yeah, get it, get it happen. Um, yeah, because they took you to Japan, I think. Um, yeah. So. Well, one last question before we look to wrap things up, and it's kind of your sure. your insight 
into where you think the music industry is today because, you know, you grew up when, um, you know, kind of, I'm a little bit younger than you but near the same age where it was cassettes and CDs and magazines and, you know, all of this stuff in the industry is how you found out music. Now with the internet and streaming services, everything's at your fingertip. But the question is, do you think the industry... Um, as a whole, is really geared towards helping bands grow and, you know, become big, or do you think it's harder now for a band to really grow and become big? Well, that's really hard to say. I mean, you let's uh, talk about Knocked Loose for a second. You know, this band seemed to come out of nowhere, and uh, now we're at the top of the game. So uh, they are evidence, I mean, you know, uh, that it's definitely possible to do things um, and that the industry is helping bands grow. I mean, they, they knocked loose this time last year, uh, had a, a little bit of a buzz, but not like they are now. So I don't know. I think that's a positive message for a lot of bands. Um, the whole, my, I think streaming is brilliant. Um, I now am, I would say, a 95% streamer. Um, I, I, yeah, I know, believe it or not. I, you know, I've got my old records. Um, my record player hasn't been active in a few years. So, you know, if I want to listen to uh, Eye Against Eye by Bad Brains, uh, you know, I, I just stream it. Uh, I love the medium. I think the industry really needs to figure out how this can pay the bands because I, I mean, obviously Metallica is getting some money, but um, you know, bigger bands may be seeing paychecks, uh, but hardcore bands are not seeing anything. That's for sure. Or very, very little. And by very little, I mean like pennies on the dollar. Um, so the industry definitely needs to figure out how to monetize streaming uh, a bit better so the bands are getting paid. But um, I think the whole concept of streaming, that is, that is the future. That's, you know, the resurgence of vinyl is great. It's awesome that people still want physical records. Uh, there are some physical records that I still buy. I tend to buy older ones. Um, you know, for example, I really want, Guar's first album on colored vinyl very badly. <laughs> um, I'm a huge Guar fan. Um, but, you know, people are still buying records and, and somewhat CDs, but it, it does seem, you know, just like magazines are now podcasts, uh, records and CDs may, may be around forever, but it's primarily going to be streaming. Um, that's just the way it is until whatever happens next, until they can beam it right. They can beam music straight into our brains. But, um, which, you know, who knows when that's happening? Next Probably week. Next week. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, exactly. But um, I, I back streaming. I think it's a, a brilliant service. I use Spotify. I love it. Um, I love having most of the music that I've ever wanted at my fingertips. Um, but again, 
it, it's just got to be monetized better. Um, you know, with the, I, I don't know how often Shiloh is streamed, but uh, I think the money we receive probably isn't enough. And I think uh, similar hardcore bands or underground bands should be paid if their stuff is being listened to, mm, yeah. um, especially on a service especially on a service that's making money, that's charging you to listen. Um, and and I, I have a slight hope that, um, that it will all pan out. Because, again, no one, no one is under any uh, delusion that streaming is not the way of the future. Yeah, and, and you're spot on. I think you know, there's just some kinks that need to be worked out, like you said, like with payments, but it is the future and it is really convenient i don't have to anymore have a massive uh cd wallet of cds when i go somewhere like driving i now just need to have my phone charged and the right cable and i can listen to all you know i can listen to vulgar display and stuff like this in the car without stressing um and you know it is exciting but like you said few kinks to uh figure out and i think eventually we will um you know we'll get there we'll get there um yeah i i i agree i'm hopeful now, Matt, we finish off with a thing that kind of we're going to find out what makes you tick. Um, it's called Pick Your Poison. Um, and I'm going to give you two options. And you pick your favorite of the two. Um, and basically, you don't have to justify your answer. But if you're worried that people are going to wonder why you picked one over the other, you're welcome to justify your answer. <laughs> I. I could see myself justifying if that's okay. <laughs> of course it's fine. Of course it's fine. Um, so we start off, would you rather have a pizza or a burger? No fair. <laughs> Speaking at the moment, pizza. Okay. Um, soft taco or hard taco? Hard taco. Okay. Smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Crunchy. Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Indian. Okay. Coffee or tea? Um, I don't drink either that much, but coffee. Okay. Um, do you prefer to cook at home or dine out? Uh, dine out, always, if I can. <laughs> um, if you're going to go see a movie, do you want to watch it at the cinema or from the comfort of your couch? Uh, comfort of my couch. I'm a homebody. Uh, do you prefer the beach or the snow? Um, I, I would go to the beach. Okay. Cat or dog man? Now that's a funny one. I used to be uh, a cat person through and through, but, um, I, I'm a changed man. Dogs. Oh, okay. Um, Rambo or Rocky? Rocky. Nice. Um, Terminator or Predator? Oh, tough. Uh, ultimately, Predator. Okay. Uh, MacGyver or Walker, Texas Ranger? Who do you want in your corner? Oh, good. Uh, I'll go with MacGyver. Uh, South Park or Simpsons? Um... That's a good one. I, I've never really watched either, if you can believe that. Mm. 
yeah. Uh, I remember watching uh, the Simpsons shorts when they were on uh, the Tracy Ullman show. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I thought they were funny back then. I've never seen uh, a full episode of South Park, but I love the idea of the commentary that they uh, provide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, hmm, tough call. Off the top of my head, I'll go Simpsons. Okay, now we're probably going to get into the hard ones now because these ones are music-based. Um, Slayer okay. Slayer or Pantera? Slayer. No, no disrespect to Vinnie Paul and Dimebag, but I've never, never been a Pantera fan. Uh, Metallica or Megadeth? Metallica. Number one. Cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia Murder? Uh, Black Dahlia Murder. Okay. Anthrax or Testament? Testament. Uh, Converge or Dillinger Escape Plan? Never listened to either. Uh, that the, the, what they call the chaos core Mm -hmm. has never really, uh, appealed to me. So I'm, uh, I, I draw vaguely. Well, yeah, I'm neutral, but I'm vaguely familiar with both bands, uh, play with them both, you know, numerous times, but I don't know much of the music in their catalog. Uh, Terra or Madball? Madball. Uh, agnostic front or sick of it all? Sick of it all. Uh, Motley Crue or Van Halen? Oh, there's no Van Halen album that hit me the way Shout of the Devil does, but that's the only Motley Crue album that really gets me, and I like all of Van Halen. So that you see how that's difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh. Shit! Just because I dressed up as Nikki Six for Halloween once when I was twelve, I'm gonna go with Motley Crue. <laughs> okay, now last few. If you're playing a show, do you want stage dives going on, or do you prefer to see mic grabs going on? Mic grabs. There's nothing more more empowering to me than group sing-alongs. My favorite thing. If you're gonna go to a show and watch it, are you gonna watch it from the middle of the pit? Or are you going to watch it by the sound desk? <laughs> sound desk? Come on. I'm <laughs> nearly 50. <laughs> um, I'm nearly 40, so I'm sound desk every day of the week. Um, <laughs> would you prefer to tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? Oh, good question. Um, off the top of my head, I'd say tour. Okay. And the last one, you're about to be given your all-time favorite album, do you want to be given it on CD, vinyl, or do you just want it on your phone? Uh, well, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's the most influential album in my life. Uh, that's Master of Puppets, and I'm looking at it right now on vinyl, framed, hanging on the wall. So I'd take it again on vinyl. Bang. Um, Matt, we, you know... We definitely nearly clocked in two hours, but I am so fucking glad we did, dude. That was, um, you know, you, when you start up this podcast, whenever I interview anyone, I have expectations and goals, um, and that was really smooth, easy, uh, enjoyable, fun, and I love that you can answer a question and go on a tangent. Um, it was, for me, 
exceeded everything I wanted out of it. So I'm absolutely chuffed. Oh, well, great. I'm, uh, I'm thankful. I, thanks for, you know, one having us, if you want to know the truth, when I saw that you were doing, um, you know, Evergreen Terrace and God forbid, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if this guy's ever going to get in touch with us. And I was really <laughs> thrilled when you did. Truly, truly my pleasure. Flattered to have been asked. Like I said, I, I, I enjoy your podcast. Uh, you're a legend, Matt. Um, I'll speak to you soon and uh, much love, much respect, brother. Likewise, my friend. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.
Yeah, 
So that was my chat with Matt of Shy Halud. And at the end there, you heard the band's track, A Human Failing, which is from their album, Reach Beyond the Sun. You heard the band's track, Chorus of the Dissimilar, which is from their album, Misanthropy Pure. You also heard the band's track, This Wake, I Myself Have Stirred, which is from their album, Hearts Once Nourished with Hope and Compassion. This is the part of the show where I spark that bit inside you to support the artist that's been on the show. So if you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoyed the music, now is your time to get online, download it, stream it. If you're into physical copies, get onto eBay, try and grab yourself a vinyl, maybe a CD, maybe you can find a t-shirt, whatever you got to do, support Matt, support Shy Halud. I also need to take this moment to thank Matt again. Thank you so very, very much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. It was an epic chat, and I look forward to doing a part two soon. And that's it. That's The Mosh Zone, episode 103, done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget... You can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.